Church, you may be seated and please meet me in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, then you get to Romans and then 1 Corinthians. If you get to 2 Corinthians, go back to the left. It's also should be a reminder should be there in your worship book about that text. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll begin in verse 12 and do our very best to make it all the way to verse 58 today. Uh, so we got to hustle a little bit. My name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders at Church Square. It's good to open up God's Word with you and take some time to conclude um, our reflection on passion or evil. Direction. When we remember when we were back in Ezekiel, can these uh, live? Uh, the glory of the resurrection on Palm Sunday, and then the need for resurrection on Good Friday. The new direction early on Sunday morning at our sunrise gathering, and then last week on Easter Sunday, we looked at the reality of the resurrection. I'd like to look at the future. So we've looked at the past and considered the events even preceding the resurrection, looking at the resurrection itself that particular morning. Uh, but now we ought to look to the future, thinking about what, what bearing the resurrection actually has on our faith and our eternity, specifically in the afterlife, or what one scholar calls the life after life after death, which seems like a bit like a matrix, but essentially this idea of Christian doctrine that there is life for followers of Jesus, not just after they die, but in a kind of an existence even uh, after that, which we'll explore today. And, and because of this concept, we all just have to admit, whenever we talk about heaven and whenever we talk about the future, we've all got a ton of ideas that we have been told that the next age or our afterlife is going to look like, whether we come from an experience where that doesn't exist, this is all wishful thinking, or heaven looks like a particular thing and a particular reunion with a particular people. I think we all just kind of need to confess most of those ideas have not come from the Bible. They, they have come from different stories we've told ourselves or heard from someone else, and so it's really important that we remind ourselves of what the scriptures teach about this age to come, about what waits for us after our death and after the return of Christ. If you remember, we actually explored this a bit back in January. And I know you keep incredible notes and don't need any reminders about what we talked about in January, but we were in Romans 8 at the time, and we explored the idea of heaven in sort of popular culture, and in much church language is really misleading. It's really misleading, in particular when we think about Christian imagination. Our understanding of heaven is often the place that we go when we die. However, when we look at the scriptures, we realize that heaven is better understood as the realm where God dwells. It, it's, it's where his, his, his rule, his presence, his power is unquestioned. It's a power and presence in which Jesus actually instructs us to pray that it would come and show up on earth in increasing measure. Perhaps most famously in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is where? In heaven. So we're supposed to pray that heaven will come to earth today, not that one day those on earth will go to heaven. Are you with me? It's like the opposite. This, this is how bad we are at making up doctrine. It's usually the opposite of what the Bible teaches, right? So instead of praying, God, will I go to heaven someday? We're supposed to pray, God, would, would heaven come here right now? Which I think is actually, it's way better news. It's way better news that heaven shows up right now. But so heaven is not simply than the place where we go, the place where God dwells. But heaven is what Jesus then has brought and, ha and is advancing, if you will, on earth right now, particularly through the resurrection. It's directly connected to his resurrection. In fact, if you remember, uh, when one of the thieves is on the cross, though, Jesus introduces this other idea. 
not just heaven, not just resurrection, but paradise is what he calls it in Luke 23. And the Apostle Paul explains in 2 Corinthians, we know that while we are at home in the body, we are away, we are away from the Lord. Yet, we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And so when Jesus promises the thief, the, the criminal, today you're going to be with me in paradise, he's making a statement of what's going to happen to him after death. See, when we die in Christ, we leave our bodies and we are instantly in the presence of God in what the scriptures calls paradise. But paradise is not heaven. It's not the same as heaven. Heaven is the realm of God. Paradise is the instant yet temporary presence of God that believers go the moment that they die. But then there's resurrection. There's this idea even of an event of resurrection. The Bible speaks about resurrection in three different ways. That Jesus rose from the dead, so Jesus' resurrection. And then it talks about a spiritual resurrection. And then an event, a physical resurrection that will take place for believers, a bodily resurrection. And so resurrection is not heaven. Resurrection is not paradise. It is this third idea, this event in the future that the scriptures teach about. It's this life which we are risen to after paradise, after Jesus makes heaven and earth one, then every, the dead in Christ rise and have this bodily existence in the age to come. Now, for some of us who didn't grow up with that understanding, that's kind of a trippy idea, right? Maybe we're down with the story of Jesus rising from the dead, but, but understanding how all of us who are dead in Christ will rise to new life with Jesus is a new concept. And so when we think about, though, the life after life after death, we think about heaven, we think about paradise, and we think about resurrection. And they all have this unique contribution to what we're supposed to expect after our death and particularly after Jesus returns. So in summary, heaven is the realm of God that's coming to earth. That's happening right now. Paradise is the instant, temporary, and spiritual presence of God, and that happens when believers die. But what we need to focus on today is resurrection. Resurrection is the moment we rise to new spiritual and physical eternity. And that happens spiritually at the moment of salvation, we're told, because the Spirit of God comes in us. We're risen to new life in a spiritual sense. And then physically, when Christ returns, we raise to a bodily new life. So this is context for us. Context that we're not talking about heaven in particular. We're not talking about paradise in particular. We're talking about resurrection, that event when uh, we are the dead in Christ rise. And so our spiritual and bodily resurrection are directly informed by the resurrection of Jesus. So here's what I'd like to do today. Well, step on a microphone stand and almost fall over. That's what I want to do today. No, what I'd like to do today is look at the resurrection of Jesus and understand how we understand our resurrection as a result of his. So it's, it's not just that it's great that Jesus rose from the dead, but what the scriptures teach us is that if we want to understand what it will look like at the resurrection for the people of God, we look at the resurrection of Jesus, and that informs our understanding of the future. So that's what I'd like to talk about today, how the resurrection of Jesus validates our faith, how it clarifies our future, and thirdly, how it secures our victory. So how it validates our faith, how it uh, clarifies our future, and thirdly, secures our, our victory. So let me pray and ask for the Lord's help as we will explore 1 Corinthians 15 today. Uh, God, left to ourselves, we are mad confused. Uh, even this little introduction, this, this summary may feel like a lot to already consider. And so we pray by your Spirit that you would bring us clarity and understanding and security and joy as we anticipate the future coming kingdom of Jesus. It's important we do this because your word tells us so. 
And so help us to not be apathetic towards this and act as though it doesn't matter because it's not happening yet, because it is already happening in large proportion and in large meaning and measure. And so help us to be humble as we come to your word. Help me to be clear and responsible with your word. And that as we hear your word proclaimed over us, would we be like obedient kids that say yes and amen and, and, and ask that you would help us to apply this to our lives in meaningful and powerful and patient ways that ultimately reflect your son. So help us in this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so the book of 1 Corinthians is a wild letter. Because the Apostle Paul is writing to a young church in a thriving city. And so probably we can relate to this in, in the city of Chicago as a young church in a progressive city like ours. And, and like ours, the, the church in Corinth was riddled with all kinds of social tension, pressure to conform to patterns of prevailing culture. Things like sexuality and idolatry are prevalent topics of discussion that Paul wants to keep in mind in his letter to the church in Corinth. But there's also division in the church. So there's a lot of stuff going on outside of the church that Paul wants his readers to be mindful of. But he's like, don't act like all the problems are outside. Y'all have got some problems inside as well that he'd like to address. Religious concepts, things like they were debating about communion. People were like cutting in line in communion and uh, manners of worship. What does it mean to come together as God's people? And what does it look like to have orderly conduct when we come together? Not just everybody doing whatever they want. So Paul addresses a myriad of different things going on outside of the church, a bunch of things happening within the church. And the crescendo or the grounding, the place that he ends, that he takes all of everything happening outside, everything happening inside the church is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's as if he is saying, don't conform to the world because Jesus rose from the dead. Don't be divided in your fellowship because Jesus rose from the dead. So the grounding, the reason, the logic underneath everything that Paul talks about is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, before he gets to the end, chapter 16 is him saying like, say hi to all these people because I miss them and I wish I was with them. But in, in chapter 15 is where he brings his sort of topical analysis to a conclusion and he is focused on the implications of the resurrection. So look at 1 Corinthians verse, or chapter 15, verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And here's his sort of conclusion to all of this. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So we can sort of pick up that Paul anticipates, as he writes to, to Corinth, that a lot of people are like, resurrection isn't a thing. Resurrection isn't possible. Let's just be honest, realistic, and reasonable about this. People don't rise from the dead. And so Paul is saying, some of you are believing you can accept that idea and still follow Jesus. And Paul is about to explain, and he does in this passage, that that's untenable. You cannot say that no one is able to rise from the dead, and I'm still going to follow Jesus. So Paul ultimately, in his ultimate motivation and reason, foundation for this beleaguered church and everything that he's telling them, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, what? The resurrection validates our faith. 
In, in, in the resurrection, it's not just a nice story that we tell once a year. It's not just a cool illustration about the life cycles we see in nature, right? It's not a negotiable element of the Christian faith. Our faith, church, rises and falls based on the resurrection. Or as Dr. Tim Keller put it in his book, The Reason for God, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about anything that he said? The issue on which everything hangs, Keller says, is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. The resurrection validates our faith. We see three things about our faith in this particular portion uh, of this passage right here, about our faith that without resurrection in this passage, they sort of fall apart. Paul is telling us that without the resurrection, Christianity is meaningless, it's dishonest, and it's unhelpful. It's meaningless, it's dishonest, and it's unhelpful. First, look at verse 14. Faith is meaningless without the resurrection. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Paul is explaining that what we have to say, the gospel, and what we believe, the gospel, is predicated upon the the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why? Because if Jesus is merely a good teacher and then dies and never rises from the dead, then, then his gospel words and works are all proven false or evil because he was manipulating everybody. He was deceiving everybody. Everything Jesus talks about anticipates the resurrection and is grounded in the resurrection. And so let me just put it to us this way. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, do not follow him. Don't give him your life. Don't obey and heed his words because without the resurrection, Christianity is meaningless. Secondly, what Paul teaches us here now in verse 15 is that without the resurrection, our faith is dishonest. It's not virtuous to follow and believe a lie because it actually says something about the God that we then follow. Look at verse 15. We we are even found, Paul says, to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ. So to follow God without validation of the resurrection makes God deceptive and even a liar because he promised resurrection. We might think it's cool to follow God if Jesus didn't rise from that. That still is something that we can do with integrity. But God doesn't think so. And neither does the Apostle Paul. Without resurrection, Christianity is dishonest. Thirdly, in this particular portion, our understanding of how the resurrection validates our faith is that faith is actually unhelpful without resurrection. And this is actually something that I think is really important in our modern day to consider. See, some may suggest that Christianity can be pragmatic in a moral society. At least it gives you a framework for moral language. It gives you structure in your life. It's nice that you go to church, that you repent of your sins, and that you're mindful of your shortcomings, right? I I don't know about you, but I hear this sort of prevailing narrative. As long as it's generally moral and generally helps to build character within you, our spiritual condition doesn't really matter. But, but this kind of morality is a mirage. It's not real. Verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. In, in other words, you can do all kinds of moral and loving and righteous things, but if you're still in your sin, if you are still dead in your trespasses, as Paul writes to the Ephesian church, it doesn't matter. It's unhelpful because your behavior is what needs to be saved. Your behavior is not what does the saving. So Paul is saying that life and death and burial of Jesus is incomplete in its work of salvation. 
After all, if Christ died for our sins but didn't rise, how could we claim any victory over Satan's sin and death? See, his mortal course would be the same that all of us are going to follow. In his death, Jesus pays this penalty for sin, but in his resurrection, he defeats evil itself, and he proves the validity of his sacrificial atonement. So without the problem, which is sin and death, right? See, while some in particular can be meaningful, honest, resurrection, as long as it's helpful and finds impact in your life, even though some may suggest this, after all, Morality of any kind gives you order and structure, right? Personal fulfillment. Therefore, the resurrection isn't necessary. Our faith, why? Because we validate our faith. I validate it because I said it's helpful, and therefore it is. Paul doesn't think this is a really good idea, and I don't think we should either. Paul summarizes his claim by simply saying, if Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, and Christianity only helps you live morally in this life, everyone should feel sorry for us. Think about that. It's not commendable that we just do moral things and try to get other people to do moral things, whether or not Jesus rose from the dead being inconsequential. Why? Because Paul understands something about beauty and truth that I think we often disregard, that they belong together. That beauty and truth belong together. See, today, many people tend to think something can be beautiful or meaning or honest or helpful, even if it's not true. After all, an untrue story can feel really good, right? It can feel really good to watch that unfold on our televisions. An untrue idea can make you live good, right? You may read something, you know, it may not be true, but I'm just going to do it because I think it will give order to my life and actually help. But the problem is, church, an untrue story can never make you good. It can never change you. It can change your behavior. It can change your feelings for a moment, but it never changes you. See, in other words, something can only be beautiful if it's actually true. Otherwise, it's just hypocrisy. Otherwise, at some point, it takes off its masks and the thing that you thought was beautiful actually is hurting and harming you. So the resurrection is the only thing that really validates our faith. But it also changes us. See, in doing so, I think resurrection clarifies our future. Look at verse 20 with me. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, which just that brilliant statement like that. Paul sets all of this up and just, if he didn't, if he didn't, if he didn't, but he did, right? Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all died, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, that at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. So Paul is looking into the future, talking about the return of Christ. We believe that Jesus came once, lived perfectly, died sacrificially, buried literally, rose victoriously, ascended authoritatively, and he's going to come again to bring to completion everything that he has inaugurated. And the clar this clarifies our future, particularly through the nature and the character of Jesus, particularly the nature of his resurrected body. Here we read that this resurrection event, when Jesus returns after paradise and bring, bringing heaven and earth together, this is that future resurrection we're talking about. And Paul tells us multiple times, did you notice this language, that Jesus Christ is the first fruits of a new humanity. 
This is a brilliant concept that's run throughout the scriptures. See, in, the idea of first fruits comes from agriculture, which I know very little about, right? So it was helpful to read a little bit about this this week. See, the first fruits is the first and best of any harvest. That's what's known as the first fruits. And in ancient Israel, God instructed his people to bring their first fruits to him, not promise that the remainder of that harvest was going to be entrusted to God as well. Therefore, like any worship, any sacrifice or offering that we might make, whether it be monetarily or with our, with our lives and service, it's given as a representation of trusting the Lord, not just with what we are giving him, but with our entire selves, with our entire lives. Today, this idea, I think, is meant to be carried over in these different ways, but it, it's, it's seed, the beginning of it is the first fruits found in the agricultural world, found in ancient Israel. In other words, when we give our first and best to God and we also pledge or promise our complete devotion to him, we are telling this story of first fruits even in our own lives. So Paul takes that language, that illustrative language, and applies it to Christ. What he's saying is that in his resurrection, Jesus becomes the first and best of a new harvest, a new people, and a new creation. He is the first fruit, but he is also then a pledge or promise of a full harvest that is coming. Or as scholar N.T. Wright explains, that the message of Easter, or Jesus' resurrection, is that God's new world has been unveiled in Jesus Christ and that you're now invited to belong to it. Can I get an amen? That's some really good news. See, Jesus' resurrection makes ours possible. And Jesus' resurrection shows us the manner and the pattern of our own resurrection. See, in, in a Christ's resurrection, we see ours. That, that's why the resurrection of Christ clarifies our future. Paul goes on in verse 42. Look at it with me. So is it with the resurrection of the dead? What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a living, a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Paul goes on what preachers call a run. You can feel him getting excited, listing, bringing, uh, rather, bringing this cadence and this energy to what he is saying. You can tell he's excited about this. Because this is really good news, that, that the natural is not the end of the story, that the dust is not the end of the story, that the perishable and the weak is not the end of the story. There is this resurrection coming, church. Paul summarizes theologically what the gospel writers record historically about the nature of Jesus' body after the resurrection. Think about this. The resurrected body of Christ was the same but different. It was the same but different. Jesus is recognized by people, but not at first. We see this on the road to Emmaus in Luke uh, 24. We also see this in his interaction with Mary in John chapter 20. So Jesus is recognized by people, but really not at first. Jesus also eats food, which is wild. One of the things that he does in that short time between his resurrection and ascension, he's like, I need to eat something. Praise God. Yes and amen. Let's get together. Let's break bread. Let's get to Hebrew and really enjoy something before I ascend to glory, right? Are you with me yet? 
but he also can walk through locked doors. So Jesus is eating, same as he always did, but he also has this ability or this power that we didn't see previously. We see that in Luke 20 as well. Jesus also has scars of the crucifixion. You remember doubting Thomas, asked, I'm not going to believe until I see the scars of the holes in his hands, and he, and he gives them a chance in John 20 to see them. But they're not the same scars. They're not the same wounds. They're healed. So you're picking up the gospel writers are giving us a picture of Jesus' body that it's the same but different. It's recognized but not right away. He eats food, but he can walk into locked rooms. He has scars on his hands, but they are completely healed. Jesus' body is the same, but it's different. And so what Paul is telling us in 1 Corinthians 15 is that our bodies will be the same but different too. Our bodies will not waste away. They will not disappear They will not be discarded. They will not be disregarded. Rather, Paul says, the perishable will be raised to the imperishable. The dishonored will be raised to glory. The weak will be raised in power. The natural will be raised to the spiritual. The dust of the earth will be raised to heaven. We will be physical beings like the resurrected Lord, recognizable, enjoying food, reflective of our current body's story, but we will also be changed and glorified bodies just like the resurrected Lord. Different, more spiritual, healed, and unthreatened by death ever again. Do you see? Jesus is the first fruits of a harvest that we're about to be a part of. The resurrected Christ, then, when we see his resurrection, we get a taste, we get a picture, we get this anticipation of what our future will look like by grace through faith. See, resurrection validates our faith. Resurrection clarifies our future, but it also secures our victory. Also, we're told we're sealed in this now and forever, and in doing so, that's where we find security. And I think one of the things we're looking for right now as I talk to you, as I even navigate my own, we need some security. Something that isn't going to change with the latest update or the latest variant or the latest local or federal decision. I need some security today. I don't know about you. I need something that's stable, something that doesn't change with the shifting winds and psychology of the day. I need something that's secure. And this is what the Word of God gives us. Look at verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For the perishable body must, excuse me, put on the imperishable, And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? Where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ. See, there is a day of resurrection coming. Not a spiritual day. That has already taken place for us by grace through faith and salvation, but a day of physical and bodily resurrection. That moment in history when Jesus returns on the other side of paradise, 
when heaven and earth have been made one. In other words, when the fullness of heaven has shown up on earth, they are together as one. It's at that moment that the scriptures teach us that the dead in Christ will rise. Jesus will bring the fullness of his rule and reign. And as Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, every knee will bow to Jesus. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And consistent then with the writings of Isaiah and Zechariah, Paul talks about a trumpet. He says someone's going to blow a trumpet which will sound the end of one age and the beginning of another. And its echo will inaugurate the age to come. A time in which evil will be rendered powerless. Satan will no longer have a foothold. And sin will no longer tempt you. Can you even imagine that day? How much of our weariness and confusion and pain and sorrow is because sin never ceases in this age? And the security that we have in Christ is that one day, sin will no longer tempt and death will no longer threaten you. We see the beginnings of this coming day in our spiritual resurrection, where death truly is no longer our story. We have hope in life. Sin no longer has mastery over us. We can be mastered by the Spirit of God. And ultimately, Satan is no longer our Lord because we have found Jesus. And therefore, we see the whispers of all of these things beginning to take a hold. But Jesus is telling us, Jesus is demonstrating through the words of Paul, that one day all of these spiritual realities will take on flesh and be physical, will seal and secure victory for us in Christ forever. See, the resurrection validates our faith. It clarifies our future, and it secures our victory. If Jesus has not been raised, your faith doesn't matter. It doesn't. If Jesus has not been raised, our future is as hazy as anybody else's. And if Jesus has not been raised, victory is a mythology that may make us feel good and live a little bit differently today, but it has not changed you. But because Jesus has risen from the dead, your faith really matters, and it is really true. Because Jesus has risen from the dead, your future is cleared, and not only that, it's secure. The future resurrection then causes us to live differently today, because all of that is true. We live differently. This is how he concludes. Look at verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, don't just let this feel good to you. Let this be warm and fast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. In the Lord, your labor is not in vain. The power of resurrection upon our faith and our future and victory empowers us to live differently today. It's meaningful. It's true. It's helpful. It's clear. It's secure. I have been witnessing this in your life these past two years. Though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you have feared no evil. You have trusted your Lord. He has walked with you. And I've seen you become more humble. I've seen you become more faithful. I've seen you bear fruit. I've heard you and witnessed you disciple one another, bringing meals when no one invited but definitely needed it. I've seen you grieve with one another. I've seen you love each other. Even simple things like, can I hug you instead of just doing it? You are learning to love each other. This is all fruit of the Spirit. This is all God at work within you. Why? Because the resurrection is a nice story? No, because the resurrection has changed you. You've given your money away. You've opened up your home. You've watched people's kids. You've navigated having kids in this city together. It is beautiful to see the church being the church because the resurrection is real. This matters. 
See, resurrection empowers us to live differently, to be mindful of our neighbors, to actually care about the plight of people we've never met simply because we call the same place home. Resurrection changes us, and I've seen this. Dr. Keller concludes in his new book, Book Hope in Times of Fear, reflecting on the resurrection, is that we must appropriate these truths personally by faith. In other words, the resurrection cannot, church, just be a story that makes us feel good once a year. The resurrection must be the impulse and heartbeat of who we are as a people, empowering us to live lives where beauty and truth are constantly found in concert and harmony with one another. Therefore, let me charge you in this. Amidst a shifting tide of culture outside and inside of the church, remain steadfast. And you can be steadfast because of the resurrection. As the winds of what is acceptable, what is honorable, what is helpful, what is beautiful, and what is true, as that changes all the time, be immovable. When impulses of selfish ambition and longing to find instant gratification in whatever idol you may be trusting in that day, instead abound in the work of the Lord. When we wonder if all of this matters, if you just constantly are giving yourself over and in this church life and this Jesus life and trying to follow him in your vocation, if the resurrection life is really beautiful, if you're wondering, is it really true, we can remember and build our lives on the fact that because of the resurrection, nothing you do in Christ is in vain. Nothing you give your life to by grace through faith for the work of Jesus and his glory is ever in vain. This stabilizes us. So the resurrection is certainly not a story that just makes us feel good or makes us live good. It's a story that transforms you and makes you more like Christ and and ultimately makes you more into the people that we are going to be one day at the fullness of time when Jesus returns, brings heaven with him, and the dead in Christ will rise to a full and forever existence with God in a new heavens and new earth. I can't wait for that day, but I'm so glad in some ways we're not waiting at all. We're enjoying it right now. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's really hard often to understand how your word penetrates, transforms our daily lives. And so I pray that you would help me, help my brothers and sisters, knowing that the resurrection has been something that you promised, something that that ultimately demonstrates your glory, something of news, of good news that began to spread in the ancient world, and something that is a true, logical, and reasonable reality that we can even trust in 2,000 years later. Help us, therefore, to live differently and to look at the future differently as a result to live as a people certainly grieved and beleaguered by this world, and yet a people who have hope, who have security and victory, whose faith has been validated by the resurrection, who ultimately understand, Father, that we have meaning and hope and help and joy in you. So I pray that for my sisters and brothers. I pray that for myself. In Jesus' name, amen.